What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In Season 2, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now, your host, award-winning architect-turned-entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Cotter. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today, our guest is Camila Krasut. Camila is an architect and interior designer and works as a project manager at Spivak Architects in New York City. Previous to joining the firm, she worked at TPG Architecture and McGinley Design. Her experience as a designer is concentrated in residential and hotel projects, but she has also worked on fascinating public projects like the Islamic Cultural Center near the World Trade Center site. I will note that while Camila was at McGinley and I was at Excel Development, we worked together on the 500 East 14th Street project in the Lower East Side. Today, we'll be talking about her Central Park West project, an apartment renovation on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. More broadly, we will talk about what makes a good client and perhaps more interestingly, what makes a bad client. Thank you so much for being here with us, Camila. Thank you for having me, Atif. This is great. Absolutely. My pleasure. So let's dive right in. You did your training in architecture in Venezuela and your training in interior design in the United States. What were the differences in how you were taught in those two places? Oh, wow. Huge difference. I would say that the education in Venezuela is more European-oriented. So when you graduate from high school, you actually go to your career and it's not like here that you can have like a two or three years of basic classes and then you decide where you go. And then actually you, you finally decide at the end of your career with a master's degree or something like that. In Venezuela, it's more like a, it's the university, it's not a college. And you go and you are a lawyer, a doctor, an architect, an engineer, psychologist, something like that. And it's supposed to be, that is supposed to be the rest of your life. So you're going to be that for the rest of your life. When I came to New York to study interior design, that I thought it was a complement to architecture, I realized that it was not, that it was seen here like a completely different field, that it didn't matter what was my background before taking the master's. So I, I had some classmates, they didn't have any background in architecture or design. And I was uh, baffled by that. I mean, it was like a, I didn't understand, but I've been here now for 23 years. So now I understand that you can change. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like change is one of those things that are different. This idea of 
compartmentalization. And how about about scale? Is that another thing that tends to be different in terms of what a designer is able to do in terms of large scale and small scale in a place like Venezuela versus the United States? Yeah, I would say that it's less, uh, as you say, compartmentalized. Is I mean, you're an architect, so you are supposed to be able to design whatever from a house to a building. And then here you realize that architects have different niches. So if you are known to being a residential design, a house design, so people may think that you are not able to to design a, a whole building. Mm. And maybe with experience that could happen, I mean, that you are so used to do the same thing or you you get all the details of doing one thing that then at the end you're much better doing that one than a new one. But the idea when you leave the university is that you are a complete architect. I mean, that you're supposed to be able to design whatever. I mean, to understand because at the end it's a, it's a problem. It's a design problem. And you have the tools to understand the design problem and to resolve it. And in that context, since you have the experience and the education, both as an architect and an interior designer, how do you introduce yourself to people that you meet? Has changed over the time. (laughs) (laughs) A lot. So right now I introduce as interior designer. I'm not licensed here in the United States, so I'm not supposed to use the term architect, mm-hmm. uh, although I'm licensed in Venezuela, so that's a, like a gray area. But after the years, I understood that that's uh, my niche, interior design. Mm-hmm. I would like to say more interior architecture because when you say interior design, some people think that it's just the decoration mm-hmm. or finishes, and it's more than that. But yeah, at this point, I introduced myself as an interior designer. And then you have worked on your own and also you have worked as part of design firms. What was the process in making the decision like to start your own practice and work on your own uh, and then later return to a design firm? Well, I did work by my own in Venezuela. Ah, got it. Okay. Yeah. So it's completely different. Mm-hmm. So I'm from there. I have the connections. I have the friends. When I came to the United States, so I, for me, it was easier to start in an office. I have done some little projects for friends mm-hmm. here in the United States, but just like a project for friends. I think it's difficult for somebody that is not from here to start your own office or business, especially in something like an architecture. I think you need to have unique connections. You need to know people. And you also need to feel comfortable with all the details that takes to have an, an office from taxes to HR. So I still don't feel comfortable. I still feel that I'm learning a lot of how the business is here in the United States. And then the firm that you're currently with, the project that we're going to be focusing on is the Central Park West project. So talk to us about the Upper West Side the neighborhood where this project is located and the building itself, because many of our listeners are actually from outside New York City, and we want to give them a perspective of Manhattan and specifically this part of Manhattan. The Upper West Side is a residential neighborhood. is next to Central Park. Mm -hmm. It's a family neighborhood, but also very high-end neighborhood. So it's an upper-class area. The building itself is uh, Central Park West, so it faces the Central Park. 
So you just cross the street and you have this huge garden. And the west refers to being on the west side of the park, right? West side of the park, okay. yeah. And then you have the east side that is a similar kind of neighborhood. Mm-hmm. This one is on the west. I would say the west is more family oriented than the east. Uh, that's the stereotype. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's how people here in Manhattan think about it. Mm-hmm. And the building is a pre-war building. It's not at all. I, uh, I think it's 11 floors, mm-hmm. uh, 11 stories, 11 to 12. As I say, it's a pre-war building, so it's very old one. And uh, when people say pre-war in the United States, uh, or in New York City specifically, that means before World War II, right? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that means uh, 1930s, 1920s, et cetera, like that. Yeah, 19, yeah. Okay. The scope of the apartment renovation, could you walk through that for us as well? Yes, this client came to our office because they saw another project that the office did some time ago, and they really like it, and they like the concept, and they had this apartment, and they approached the office asking for the same ideas that were they saw in the other apartment. So this is a completely renovation project, so we, we completely demolished the whole apartment. Mm-hmm. So everything was removed. We have working on it since then. So. You, you mean except the, the structure and the facade, right? Yes, yeah, <laughs> except the structure. All the interior walls or the bathrooms, kitchen, plumbing, electrical, everything was removed and done. And in terms of the number of bedrooms and bathrooms, how much was that? So we have three bedrooms, three bathrooms, one office, one guest bathroom. We have open kitchen, living and dining area. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's an open layout. And we have a TV family area that it could be closed or open towards the living room area. And who were your clients and what was the process like in working with them? They is a couple with two kids. They were both professionals. He has his own company. They approach, as I say, they approach the office uh, because they saw this project that the office did before mm-hmm. and they really like it. They are very open to our suggestions and they are very willing to work with us and they understand what is the role of the architects and designers. So it has been actually a very good project in that terms. It has been very good to, to work with them. Is our past projects one of the most common ways that your firm gets new projects? Yeah, it is. I mean, we are a very small firm and more like a boutique studio. Mm-hmm. We actually don't have any niche. We work in different kinds of projects, which is good sometimes. And I would say it's not that good sometimes because as I said before, I mean, people that like when, when the architect or designer is just working in one thing. But yes, it's the way Howard has get new clients and mm-hmm. retain clients. And Howard's the owner and the founder of yeah. the firm. Okay. Howard is the owner of Howard Spivak Architects. Okay, that's <laughs> <So. laughs> the last name. <laughs> yeah. And in terms of the client, would you say that they are very detailed or they gave you pretty much full reign to do whatever you want? Like, how did that process uh, work? Well, this, specifically this one, I mean, they came saying, we really like this idea that you did in this other project, which was uh, apartment two, where the millwork was part of uh, the red as the walls of the project. So they really liked this idea. And also they liked that they had a lot of closets and a lot of storage. 
So that was the concept that was used on this design from the very beginning. So they are very open. They really know what they want, but they are open to suggestions. Mm-hmm. They tell you we want this or this feeling, and then we come with the solutions and they say, yes, it's going uh, towards this or it's not going toward this. Mm-hmm. And, and then walk our listeners through the apartment, describing what they would see along the way, including these uh, beautiful millwork walls. Well, when you get into the apartment, you have your whole foyer space where you're going to have this beautiful millwork uh, wall that is actually your uh, closet for your coats. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to see a peak of the open area, the living room and the dining room. On your left, you're going to see the open kitchen, which is a kitchen that actually has a glass wall that when you're not using the back of the kitchen, you just close that wall. And then you're going to see all this millwork up to eight feet high. And the way that we design it is that it has the impression that it doesn't have any wall on top. Mm-hmm. So you can see through, but actually there is a division. And then you're going to have this beautiful hallway with all this millwork that has some undulating features because the poles are is a piece of wood that is undulating. And those are the, the bedrooms. And then on your right, I mean, the living room and the dining room is going to have all these windows that, that you can see the Central Park. So in your design process, because the views of Central Park are so valuable and something that people really appreciate, what role did those, like the windows and the where natural light was coming in, play in your design process for the interiors? It was a big role, actually. The whole layout yeah. of the apartment was changed for what it was at the beginning. I mean, okay. remember, this is an old apartment, and actually one of the areas that had all these beautiful windows to the Central Park was a bedroom, mm-hmm. and you couldn't see it from the entrance of the when you enter the apartment. So we changed the whole layout to take advantage of those windows and to have more windows into the living area spaces. The bedroom windows are windows that go to the cross street. Still, you can pick a little bit to, to the Central Park, but not as much. And they... For them, it was a priority to have the main views in the living areas. Mm. And then you're about 90% done with the project now. Looking back, what would you say are some of the biggest challenges you faced in the design process and then executing that design? The challenge that we faced was the building. (laughs) Okay. What do you mean by that? The cop. Got it. Oh, the cooperative structure. Yeah, okay. it's a co-op building. So it has a whole process of mm-hmm. uh, approvals. All your drawings have to go to the co-op chair mm-hmm. and group. And we have a lot of back and forward with the co-op. And we had to change things because the co-op didn't approve them. They were really afraid of something that is called wet over dry Mm -hmm. so if you have a bathroom upstairs and then downstairs is not a bathroom it could cause uh, a problem we waterproof the whole apartment yeah on the floor not just the bathrooms i mean the whole apartment is waterproof oh wow why would you do that underneath the living room for example because we wanted to make sure that we were not going to have problems uh, at the end. Mm -hmm. And we actually removed the whole floor construction. We just left the structure Mm -hmm. and we did it again. So because we wanted to have a very level floor. Got it. Since everything is millwork, I mean, it's very important to have a level floor. 
So then you don't have this difference in heights, mm -hmm. you know? So the call was very challenging. And also, uh, unfortunately, the pandemic, mm -hmm. going into the medium too. Oh yeah, that. <laughs> that, that. <laughs> but specifically, was it because of labor or materials or both? Specifically because time, it took time. Time, okay. time that we didn't take in consideration. It took a lot of time from the project. And that means money and, mm -hmm. yeah. So that means literally, like one of my projects stopped for about six weeks until the state figured out what they were doing in terms of allowing construction or not allowing. Did you have a similar break of six weeks or was it longer, shorter? It was longer than that. Got it. Okay. And the pandemic, it was longer than that. I mean, the building closed any access to the building. Ah, because that's different probably than a new construction or even a single family home because you can stage around yeah. the property easily. Though. Yeah, so we simply couldn't access the building. Mm -hmm. They didn't allow us until the city opened all construction. Got it. <laughs> so that was long. I mean, it's, it's time. Time is money. And thank God the client, I mean, has been very, he understands all this process. Uh -huh. He doesn't need to move immediately. Yeah. So, yeah. I think that that is an incredible challenge in places like New York and New Jersey, where the monthly cost of simply having a property is so high from taxes to utilities to your mortgage and everything else. So I can definitely appreciate that. I'm going to take a break here to let our listeners know that we'll be having Faith Rose of O'Neill Rose Architects on next month. Her stunning homes have been featured in New York Magazine, the Wall Street Journal and Architect Magazine. Make sure to subscribe to the American Building Podcast so you don't miss out on Faith's interview or any of our other wonderful guests in season two. So, Camila, what do you think makes a good client? Well, I think a good client is the one that understands what is your work, that respects you as a designer mm -hmm. and understand that it's coming to you because you have the tools and the preparation to do this type of work. That's what I think. Why I'm saying that because sometimes you get clients that they look at you and you are just a drafter for them mm -hmm. and they don't understand why you're taking the decisions that you're taking and they come back and ask the same questions and you try to, to explain to them why the way that we are doing it is the way that it could be better for them to use the space. So that's what I think makes a good client and a bad client. I, I answer the most questions. <laughs> in this. I think I'm then I'm going to ask you a little bit more about the, the yeah keep, keep. <laughs> about the good clients then because those the better ones. <laughs> so you talked about a client being able to understand and appreciate the profession of design and the skills that, that come to it. Talk to us more about how a good client would be able to express that they just don't like something versus don't like your process or don't like the way that you're going about something. Like, What is the right way for a client to be able to express that? Okay, I would say, I mean, the best way for a client to approach a designer, an architect, uh, I'm saying the, the word designer, because mm -hmm. this applies to any field that you have to design something. Mm -hmm. It's what is, is telling the designer, what is the end result? What do you want at the end? If it is your house, how do you want to feel in your house? Mm -hmm. How do you live? 
I mean, you, are you a person that likes uh, to have people in your place? Are you a person that likes to entertain? Mm -hmm. Or are you a private person? That's the best way to approach uh, the designer. Tell him what are your desires. How do you feel the end result should be? But not telling me from the beginning is I like this type of window or I like this type of uh, knob door mm -hmm. because those details are going to be part of the concept. Mm -hmm. Are going to be uh, are going to be the result of the part of the concept. So the main the main thing is the concept that you're going to have at the beginning, and the concept is based on those requirements that the client has. So it sounds like then a good client is one that is clear about their desires from the outset and can clearly differentiate between what is the thought, the emotion, the inspiration, and what is the actualization of it. So to exactly. talk about, I want a really easy flow between the kitchen and the living room as people are always going back, back and forth, rather than saying, Camila, I want this doorknob for the door between like the two. Got it. Okay. I think in a similar way, I could imagine it's basically if someone were to go to a surgeon and say, I want this surgery on this part of my body and I want you to use this tool and this because the person would be like, what? Exactly. But I understand too. I mean, this is such a subjective field because at the end, I mean, it's, you're going to live there. So it's, it's your house. It's mm -hmm. not mine. So I understand that, but there are things that I, as a professional, as an architect, as an interior designer, I know better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and you should trust. I mean, trust is, is also another word. You mm -hmm. should trust me. You should trust your designer and your architect that he's doing the best for you. The other things like a color finishes, mm -hmm. that's also, that's like a second part of the design process. So once you have the concept, once you know how the layout is going to work, how the flow, as you say, is going to work. So you can, and you can also start thinking about those things. Although they overlap because we don't think just on 2D. I mean, we think on 3D. So we are thinking at the same time that we are developing a layout, we are thinking what I'm going to see from here or if I'm going to have a window here or, or not. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, there are all the technical stuff that we need to know. I mean, we need to know all the codes, ADA issues. <laughs> yeah, I think or it's a lot. So it's it's more than just picking the paint colors, right? <laughs> it's it's more than just picking a paint color or just doing a just draw me something there. It's like going to a party and asking a doctor, I mean, I have this pain here. What do you think? <laughs> Which I think doesn't stop people from doing it, but it's kind of hilarious nonetheless, I think. Yeah, I think every profession has the same problem somehow. Yeah, I think that you talked about the clients that you've had on the larger, more expensive projects, but you've also had good clients on projects of vastly different scope and scale and budget. Could you talk to us about clients on like a different type of project that were good as well that, and, and what particularly was unique about them? Yeah, I did work for a while with Watson Associates mm -hmm. and they did a lot of nonprofit organizations work. I specifically worked on three of them. One of them was the Gold Project. They worked with kids and they have this office in around Astor Place. Mm -hmm. And it was a very old office and it was all gray and they wanted to renew it. 
But of course, being a nonprofit, the budget is always a problem. But they were great because they were so open and all the suggestions that we did, they really wanted something cheerful and colorful. And the way that we achieved that, it was uh, a very uh, inexpensive way. We did it with paints, we did it with graphics, mm -hmm. we did it with lighting fixtures that were not expensive. And the end result, it was amazing, it was beautiful. But they were connected to us all the way and they were very helpful, mm -hmm. open to all the suggestions that we had. So we go back to the same thing. I mean, the client, that really appreciates you is the one that really helps into the process too, mm -hmm. is, is the best client. And at the end, it's, it's better for the project because if you have a good relationship with your client, if your client trusts you and you feel good and you go and do more, you know? So to be fair, we've talked about what a good client is and then what a good designer is. It sounds like someone that is able to observe, to listen, to translate, and to imagine something that isn't there already. Does that sound like the right pairing with a good client? Yes. And yeah, as a designer, you also need to, to listen to your client mm -hmm. and not, not design something because you want to design it. <laughs> you know, and it's like, I, I want to do this because I know it's going to be great, but I don't care about what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, there are some designers that are like that. So. so it's basically the approach of the Frank Gehry or maybe Richard Meyer approach versus the other designers who are good. I get it. <laughs> well, but if if you go to Richard Meyer, you know what are you going to get? Because uh -huh. he's not going to change his ways. I mean, you know, you're going to get a very modern white building. Mm -hmm. and just to say, you know, plain and basic. It's more than that. But you don't go to Richard Meyer and ask him for a Barragan Hacienda in Mexico. Or a you don't tell, design or something Yeah, like that. you don't tell Richard Meyer, I want colorful walls. I mean, so you, you are in the wrong office. So, I mean, that's actually interesting as well, because there is the reality that there could be a good client and a good designer, but they're just not matched for each other. And it's about finding the right pairing of a good client and a, a good designer. That's actually a really good point yeah. too. Yeah, it's a good point too. And it happens when you have your niche, mm -hmm. when you have your set on that. The way that our office work, although, I mean, we, we have some style mm -hmm. and, and nobody is going to come to us asking for a traditional classic design <laughs> house. I mean, and if he comes, it's because he didn't check the webpage yeah. and our previous work. But yeah, I mean, we are more open to different suggestions. I mean, that, that's what happens when you're a star architect. You can pick and choose more. Mm -hmm. I think then it's a lot of fun to gossip too. So tell us about some of those bad clients. Yeah, bad clients in general, the ones that they don't respect you at all and they mm -hmm. keep asking the same questions, like uh, why I don't have the table here and over there. And we have to explain them. It's because this and this and that. We have had a bunch of those. Mm -hmm. That actually brings up a really good question of at the outset of an engagement, how can you tell the difference between a good client and a bad client? Maybe you're at a party, you're at a first meeting, somewhere. How do you start getting that impression? Well, yeah, we had this meeting, this first meeting with a client, for example. Mm -hmm. 
we were taking over another project because he fired the previous architect. That sounds like warning sign number one. <laughs> That's a warning. You need to be clear. You really need to dig in why it was fired. And then he was very like, uh, I really need to know this and this from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. There are so many questions in the first uh, meeting that you need to go back and, and do some research mm -hmm. to, in order to answer. I mean, I'm personally, I, I don't like to answer too many questions mm -hmm. on the spot because I always want to go back and, and do research and think my answers. Mm -hmm. That was another one. Oh, if they just tell you from the very beginning, this is what I want. Mm -hmm. But this is what I want. I want the door here. I want the, no, this is what I want as a concept, but this is what I want as a, as a layout, mm -hmm. as an entry, as a, the object itself or the house itself. That's that you're going to know that you're going to have a lot of problems. Okay. Because it's going to be very difficult to convince otherwise. So for younger designers that are starting out their own firms, don't be seduced by this idea of, oh my God, there's this amazing client, this amazing project actually take the time and effort to identify whether that's going to be a good client or a bad client. That would be advice. And the project too. Got I it. mean, it's not just the client, it's the project. That's a good point. This site is going to have problems uh, or not. I mean, if it, is, if it is a renovation, I mean, renovations are kind of nightmares mm -hmm. because you never know what is going to happen when you demolish. Mm -hmm. uh, how is the building? Is a co-op or is a condo? Mm -hmm. How is the landlord if it is a retail building, mm -hmm. if it is a retail space or an office space? What is in the contract? If it is a new space, of course, uh, what are all the codes and zoning and that you're facing in that lot? There is a lot of that research that you should do before. Before you dive in and sign a contract? Yeah. Cool. Uh, and then we have also talked at length about how many of the projects that we've worked on as architects are for wealthy clients and wealthy institutions with often limitless resources and that are looking for high-end work. I'm curious and I wanna hear what you think about what are low-end projects and can those projects also be interesting and those clients be interesting too? And low-end, I mean, low budgets? I, I guess yes, that's a low-end means, yeah. <laughs> Of course, they're interesting because then the challenge is to achieve what you want yeah. in a low budget. So you have to be creative in your resources. That's like the non project you were talking about. Yeah, okay. exactly. How do we create this cheerful space mm -hmm. without spending a ton of money in furniture or in high-end light fixtures? So it was the way that we use the colors. It was mm -hmm. the way that we use the graphics. All those non-profit jobs that I did, the uh, designs that I did, we use a lot of graphics mm. that it was just painted, a lot of color that it was just paint. And that made the space more uh, welcoming and more uh, cheerful, as I said. And it's uh, fun to, to try to find those uh, resources to be in budget mm. and to achieve something beautiful. Sometimes we have these crazy ideas and we realize, okay, no, this is too expensive, but maybe... Maybe we can do it this way and it's less expensive or with these materials or with these finishes and we're going to get a nice result and a good result without go blowing the budget. So it sounds like then your the process would be the same for a high-end project or a low-end, but the 
materials, the options, the solutions are potentially a different set of things, but looking to achieve similar goals. Yeah, the design process is the same no mm. matter how much money you have. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same design process. It's yeah. the same. You have to research your side. You have to talk with your client. You have to know what you can do or you cannot do. And then you have to design mm. everything. I mean, a space that is going to cost, for example, a bathroom. I mean, you can spend $5,000 or you can spend $100,000. But it's going to have a toilet, it's going to have a shower, it's going to have a sink, it needs a toilet paper holder. Mm -hmm. You need to draw the same elements, no matter how expensive are those elements that yeah. are going to go there. So the design of the layout and all the stuff is the same process. Then the design of the finishes and how are you going to finish it is, well, you have more options if you have more money. And if you have less money, you have less options, but you can be, a be a, maybe use uh, material that is, you don't see that much in that uh, environment. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that it's an inexpensive material and it's going to look good and it's going to do the job. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So then that's what you would say would be the kind of the difference. Okay. And then in the course of these questions, we've talked a lot about relationships and being able to read people. And do you feel as an architect then that you have to be more than an architect in order to be successful, like a psychiatrist, a friend, a teacher, a nanny, a babysitter? Like, what are the other roles? Yeah, all of them. Okay. <laughs> all of them all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have to be very perceptive of yeah. your clients, what are the personalities and go along with them. And if it is a residential project, I think it would be the most um, difficult ones, mm -hmm. especially if it is for a family mm -hmm. or a couple, because sometimes you have these discussions between the couples in front of you that I don't want this, I do want this. Mm. Oh. <laughs> And then you have to be like, okay, you, you need to, you know, okay, we can do something in the middle. We can compromise. Mm -hmm. Maybe commercial projects are less uh, difficult in that sense mm -hmm. because you just have one person that you need to, usually it's one person that takes the decision. You don't have to try to prevent a divorce as well during that process. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're thinking that this podcast is going to young architects and designers uh -huh, exactly. that are just leaving the school. I mean, the profession and uh, the working environment, what we do is not just design. Uh -huh. We do more than that. You have to finance, mm -hmm. uh, finances, relationships, uh, marketing. I mean, it's a lot. I think that is a perfect way to segue. So thank you so much for joining us today on the American Building Podcast, Camila. If you want to hear the behind-the-scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you like to listen. We all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Hear from me, the team at Michael Graves, and many of our spectacular guests like Camila on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, seven tips on how to stand out in your field at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. 
We must reach beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create in order to help build homes and help build communities. Today, Camila and I have made donations to Planned Parenthood, which works with women in distress for family planning and reproductive health care. I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building by Michael Graves. <laughs>